70% of the Fortune 500 use Pluralsight to upskill their workforce. Now, you can take the same courses to boost your dev skills. Start a free trial today. Visit Pluralsight.com stack to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. A lot of what we build in this industry and what software developers spend time working on begins as a startup. And the money for those startups, more often than not, unless they're bootstrapped, which is great, comes from venture capital. We are lucky today to have on the program Tomas Tunguts, who has experience both as an engineer builder and also as an investor. So we're going to chat a little bit about what he's seeing in the market, what's going on with AI, and making that jump yeah, from practitioner to investor. So Tomas, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So for folks who don't know, give them a little background. In the past, you worked at places like Google as a product manager. You were an engineer before then. And then you kind of transitioned from there into becoming an author and an investor. So maybe tell folks a little bit about that journey. Yeah, you bet. So in college and grad school, I studied mechanical engineering and computer science and really fell in love with control systems. And then first gig out of grad school was a Java engineer working for the Department of Homeland Security. Okay. Uh, and we were building different internal systems there. And that's what really got me into the world of coding, using Stack Overflow a ton in order to understand J2EE and all mm. the different frameworks. It was like Spring and all the ORMs, Hibernate and all that stuff. And then went to Google and was a product manager, started as a customer support rep, built two different internal products. That's when I learned to use Ruby. Nice. And fell in love with that stack in like 2005, 2006, Ruby on Rails. And then I managed a team that we built large-scale machine learning models for advertising, targeting in many different languages, but I wasn't coding them. And then was a red point for about uh, 14 years and invested in many, many different companies. Still code every day. I take my notes in Markdown and build lots of different internal tools in Ruby and Go, because, because Go is actually super high performance, although... We can talk about the error handling another time. Uh, yeah, sure. A lot to be desired there. And then started Theory. And so Theory is we're a $235 million first time fund. We have six people on the team, all of whom are focused on data with technical backgrounds. And we spend a lot of time in software applications, machine learning. And we're playing around with large language models. Like two weeks ago, deployed Llama 2 and hooked it up to Whisper so I could like start talking to my computer and have it start doing things. And nice. ran into lots of memory issues. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to talk to my coffee maker. That's the future I, I've been hoping for. So folks know you mentioned, yeah, you started Theory and that's a relatively young fund. You said first first time fund. But I have to assume based on your LinkedIn that you were investing before then. You've had a lot of pretty notable names on here where you were a board member that went to an exit along with some acquisitions. So um, I think people who are listening probably heard of Expensify, probably heard of Looker. Um, and you know I could go on and on. So before that, were you at a different venture shop? Uh, yeah, I was at Redpoint and uh, gotcha. you know, worked with eight unicorns there in a bunch nice. of different spaces. So a couple at the application layer, uh, expensifying customer a lot in the data stack. So worked with Looker, uh, Mother Duck and Hex, and then two in crypto and Web3. So I look at Web3, is there are many innovations there, stablecoins and DeFi, but the one that gets me most excited are these decentralized databases. I look at mm -hmm. Ethereum and Ethereum is worth about five snowflakes put together. So it's really big and probably the fastest growing database company of the last 20 years. But mm. I don't think people look at it as a database company, they look at it more as like a token. Right. Yeah. yeah, I'll put you on the spot and let's defend that a little. I mean, I, I think, you know, 
I started reporting on technology in 2010, so I missed my chance to retire for life. I think we spent our Bitcoin when it got to $20 each. We were like, this is the top. We went out and bought some pizza at Charlie <laughs> Shrem's place in New York. But that's okay. I have no regrets. And then, you know, we went through a crypto boom the 10 years following that and, you know, amazing IPO for Coinbase and something like a $3 trillion valuation across that market. And then, you know, we've had sort of a pretty harsh correction and going through the biggest fraud case in, in U.S. history with FTX at the moment. So when you think about it, Ethereum and Web3, Iron Man for me, the point that this is not about cryptocurrency. This is not about tokens and NFTs. This is actually a database play in some way. Yeah, that's the way we view it. I mean, I think these databases, they work in a different way where you don't have to trust anybody. And mm -hmm. what they're enabling is the fastest way of moving money across borders today. Mm. And the other things that they're enabling, I mean, we've met companies that have optimized stream processing and using these decentralized technologies, whether it's like consensus protocols or multi-party computation, they're able to get significant benefits from parallelization. And so it's not that they don't trust the core central actor, but they're able to take a bunch of these technologies and actually create a new architecture. And so the way that, and this is sort of very high level, but the way that we've been talking about it internally is distributed and decentralized systems converge over time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the innovations for them, those decentralized systems will become part of distributed systems. Right. I have to agree on the first point. You know, we've had some folks come on the show, talk about cross-border transactions and seem to have built a good business around remittance. And then obviously, you know, if you live in an authoritarian state and you want to get your money out, you're glad that crypto exists. On the second one, when you say it has benefits for, did you say streaming and, you know, converging on a truth, I have heard that discussion like in the realm of, for example, video games, like you've got this first person shooter and there's a big time tournament and they're playing on different sides of the globe and they need to resolve to whether or not that was a hit or miss to decide who wins, you know, the golden cup. In what way does, does a Web3 blockchain based company help with that? So not in that use case, which is the UDP use case, I'm not as deep there, but gotcha. what we have seen are like, like let's say you, you're processing a big stream of data and what you're able to do with these decentralized systems is actually move to far more significant parallelization. That's one mm. use case. Another application is federated machine learning. So say you're a big bank and you want to ensure that you run an anti-fraud algorithm exactly the same way across five different uh, branches of the bank in uh, different parts of the world where there are different data locality regimes and you need to guarantee to a regulator that you did exactly what you said that you did. Then mm -hmm. I think have a distributed orchestrator and that distributed orchestrator can then write a ZK proof that demonstrates exactly what you said. And that ZK proof is written to a public file system and that public file system is then interrogated by a compliance. And so that's definitely sort of one application of it. I think, again, kind of talking about like the the data locality rules, we envision a world where in the future, the cost associated with custodying data becomes so significant that many software applications that are touching large amounts of PII are re-architected where the users themselves are the ones custodying the data and providing selective access. So imagine a sales force that's built on top of NFTs that right. contains wiring information. And those NFTs are exposed only selectively. And whenever that wiring information changes, it's the person whose wiring information changes, like Adobe, let's say. And then that cascades through everybody else's accounts. So, mm. you know, what is the time frame for that kind of massive architectural change at the software level? It's hard to say. It's not three years. Maybe it's five, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 25. But I do think we're getting to a place where, again, the cost of regulatory compliance will become so significant and mm -hmm. pendulums will, will go back to, uh, you know, like local first applications of people desiring to control their own data. 
Right. Yeah, I read a post you wrote on it, you know, discussing many of the same things I had, you know, about why we're kind of in this bubble bursting moment. And I have to sort of agree with your, uh, yeah, pretty sanguine take it here. You know, the gloom will remain over the ecosystem until somebody figures out a way to assemble decentralized databases, tokenomics, wallets, and NFTs into a product that changes the world. So we're still waiting on that. That's a, a unknown known, in your opinion. Yeah, but I mean, I th- you know, like uh, AWS cut their price to something like 120 times within the first three years. And mm-hmm. I think we're sort of at that place in the ecosystem in Web3 where it used to cost 50 bucks to store a bit of data on Ethereum. And now the next generation technologies are doing it at a fraction of a penny. So the, right. the less and less it actually ultimately costs to store data and the better the performance of the underlying database right. opens up a universe of different applications that maybe a year or two ago were not possible because of the mm-hmm. latency of the cost. Yeah, interesting. So let's change gears for a minute. I think you said that part of your yeah, portfolio is looking at Web3 and another part of it is looking at AI. You mentioned that you're playing around with these things. If you're at Stack Overflow, you're obviously no stranger to the impact it can have and the potential as well. So tell me a little bit about your perspective on this market, what you think might be exciting for software developers who are listening. And yeah, you know, based on that, what kind of investments you're making? Yeah, I, I mean, I think as a software developer, so I use a terminal-based email client called Mutt. And... Within Mutt, I use uh, Copilot in order to kind of complete the sentences. Mm-hmm. And that's been fantastic. The other places where I've really noticed the applications of LLMs in my coding is being able to learn best practices. So I learned Ruby from a bunch of books and I've never really understood the math function. I, I just mm-hmm. couldn't tell you how it works. Right. But I know it's really powerful and I read a lot about it, but I just, I don't, it just doesn't click for me. You didn't grok. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, one day I was just writing code and it showed me how to do it. It's like, oh, that makes sense. A third example is I analyze a lot of data for the blog that I write at TomTunes.com. And I grew up learning R. I chose R because it had the best plotting library, Mm -hmm. which I think it still does. But reality is like the whole ecosystem has moved to Python, driven by data science and data movement. And now I need to do a lot more Python. And I've been learning that language just because I'm like, take this R function and make, <laughs> make it a Python right. function right. within a chatbot. It is really amazing yeah. for doing that kind of translation. You know, you, you can say like, I'm used to working in this language. This is some of the code I've written. Can you show me how you would convert this over? And as like sort of a Socratic method, you know, instructor, it can be great. My kids are doing their, their long division right now and struggling with it. And ChatGPT is a great way for them to like get some screen time, which always makes them excited and then go back and forth <laughs> yeah. about how this yeah. works and why this mistake can be cleared up. and. It does seem like a great tutor, a great teaching aid. That seems like one of its essential functions at the moment. I agree. It's infinitely patient and it will describe to you in three or four different ways with examples. And right. on the other hand, like there are a lot of challenges with it. Like one challenge is if you describe an overly complex problem, it has a very difficult time breaking it down. If it sort of makes one mistake in the sequence of steps, it has a very hard time coming back and correcting that. So I think you really have to learn how to use it's a tool. Uh, I right. think a lot of people view these systems and anthropomorphize them as having like true intelligence. Right. It is not an all-knowing sage, right? If you understand one-shot, zero-shot, chain of thought, and you know, critic actor models, and you use all those techniques when you're working with an LLM, you get way better results. If you just yeah. go to it and say, like, how are we going to solve peace in the Middle East? And it doesn't give you a great answer. And you say, see, this thing that's useless. This is, they're word prediction machines. Right. Like, like, they're very, 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 very sophisticated word prediction machines. and Oftentimes, they can lead to incredible results, but there's no, um, what's that chess game with like the man underneath that everybody thought had a machine? Yeah, Mechanical Turk. Yeah, the original Mechanical Turk. Like, 
there's still a lot of human involvement right. in producing the right kinds of outputs. And Right. So you're not of the opinion that I'm just a word prediction machine at some level. And that as these things get better, you know, these emergent sort of abilities they have showcase to what degree language alone, you know, can constitute intelligence. Yeah. I mean, uh, somebody described it to me this way, which I thought was a good analogy. Uh, you can read about riding a bicycle and you can understand it, like what it means to ride a bicycle, uh, right. to pedal. And then you learn by doing. And I think the computers can do, I mean, these large language models, it's clear they can do the first. I think some people have described them as having like these emergent behaviors, which goes back to like von Neumann, like really simple rule-based systems that produce complex emergent behavior. And maybe we're starting to see that, but I'm not convinced yet. Sure. You know, there's some argument that as we get 100x the number of neurons in a bunch of these models, maybe we'll approach it, but... Right. I mean, I, I take your point and I think it's valid, which is that, you know, it's a brain in a box. It doesn't have, you know, a body or a sense of touch. Although, you know, there's been some great releases recently from Google and other places where they layered an LLM on top of their robotics and adding that level of language capability made the robots a lot easier to interact with and that made them a lot more flexible in terms of the commands you could give and how they would, you know, act on them. Yeah, I think voice is the most natural interface for all of us to interact with the computer. We can speak three times faster than we can type. And right. I've been using dictation for the last 10 years to do blog posts and books and emails. Yeah. Yeah. manipulating my computer in order to switch between applications. And I love it. I feel fast. It feels like a great sense of connection. How do you edit with dictation? That's my only complaint. How do you go back and edit over? Yeah, so I use a Mac and a Dragon used to be the product. And now it's embedded in the operating system. I'm not sure how they did that. Mm. But there's a product It's called voice control. And you can say like, change the word Ben to Tom. Mm. And it will go back and highlight and swap it out. It's nice. look, editing is still cumbersome. I'm not going to say it's like lightning fast, right. but... If you need to rip out an email or you're going back and forth on Slack, it's just that much faster. And for any of us who spend a lot of time on a keyboard, the RSI carpal tunnel savings, which is yeah. definitely true in my case, is definitely yeah. worth it. No, I'm in the same world as you. I have, I've had a lot of tendonitis and carpal tunnel and I've been dictating. The only thing I find right is that if I'm writing something longer than an email, often a blog post, whatever, I lose a certain amount of facility fluidity if I have to edit with voice versus with my hands. Totally agree. I don't, you know, it'd be fun to solve for that. Yeah. Dump it into an LLM. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ask it what the answer is. So yeah, moving out of the theoretical, I guess in the more practical, you've written a couple of interesting blog posts recently about sort of the impact of the macroeconomic climate. One was about reduction in R&D and another was about, you know, what interest rates does to a company's runway. So yeah, what are you seeing out there in terms of how businesses are adjusting? I mean, you know, we're recording this podcast in the context of Stack Overflow announcing we're going to do a riff, focus on, you know, certain products and try to get back to, you know, being profitable, which wasn't our focus because that wasn't what the market was asking for. They were asking to see growth, growth, growth. And so that's what we did. And now we've got to turn in a different direction because like the market has as well. So yeah, talk about the macroeconomic picture and I guess a little bit about, yeah, what that means from your perspective as an investor. And then for the folks who are listening who might be startup founders, entrepreneurs at a company, or they might be independent contributors, engineering managers, wondering, you know, how their company is going to get through this. How would you look at it? Yeah. So, you know, the U.S. printed about a third more dollars than have ever existed over the last 10 years. And <laughs> just to put it into perspective, we printed a lot of money. And when you print a lot of money, each dollar is worth less. And then all of a sudden, what we needed to do is prevent inflation from happening. So we raised the cost of capital. So in order to, to raise a dollar of equity financing or borrow a dollar in debt, it costs you more than it did over the last 10 years. And the net result of that is companies are worth less than they right. were. And 
they need to be more efficient than they have been. And there are these very painful consequences, like the one that you're talking about at Stack Overflow, where all of us are trying to do more with less. And that means that the growth rates that venture capitalists expect from companies is changing. So like when I started in the business in 08, going from like one to two or one to two and a half was a really good growth rate. And mm-hmm. in like 2018, 2019, we started to see like top decile companies were growing one to four, one to five. Every once in a while, you come across a one to seven. Some of these LLM companies, you see growth rates much higher than that just because of the tremendous concentrated interest in a particular moment in time. Right. And now we're at a place where, like you said, it's not growth at all costs anymore. It's how efficient is this growth? How sustainable is it? How long right. can you stretch your runway? I mean, to put it in burn perspectives in 2008, a high burn was 250K a month. And there were some companies in like 2018, 2019, they're burning three to 5 million a month, Ouch. Uh, which you can't, you can't do that anymore. Maybe if you're an no. LLM company and you raise a couple hundred million bucks, it's right. possible, but most companies can't sustain those burn rates. Yeah. And so those are all really big changes where unit economics matter more, probably at the A, where they used to matter kind of at the C or D or as a company was approaching an IPO. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that has a bunch of downstream effects. Yeah. Does it make being a venture capitalist less fun? I mean, it used to just be funny money, right? I mean, it was like <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. the, I mean, the valuations always went up. The funds always yeah. got raised. You know, now it's tougher. Everybody's happy when we're all making money. Right. Yeah, exactly. uh, exits are easy. Up rounds come fast and furious. And yeah. the value of a company is divorced from any sort of economic value. It's more right. like a rare asset syndrome. Popularity contest. Yeah. Exactly, mind share. Right. No. So I think what it does for the entire ecosystem is it demands a different level of discipline or like mm-hmm. integrity or like honesty about the kinds of businesses that we're building. And right. the way that we work at Theory is we spend a lot of time, we'll spend in, we were researching one thesis for about 14 months. We met 140 plus companies in that space to try to understand what is the right approach because we right. think company starts out two degrees separate at the beginning. And if you know, if you launch a rocket, like two degrees, you hit the moon or you miss the moon. Right. So over the course of 10 years, that's what we were really about. And we think that kind of investing setup lends itself to a market like this. The other thing that's really important to us is to be able to support companies across multiple rounds of financing mm-hmm. because the capital markets are so different than they once were, right? The right. next round is not necessarily guaranteed and we can have a level of depth and really understanding our companies and we can have the conviction to keep supporting them as they grow. Mm. Great. In honor of your early work experience, what exactly is a container in J2E and how does it help? Well, Johnny has the answer for you and has helped over 23,000 people over the last 11 years. So appreciate it, Johnny. As always, I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on X at Ben Popper. Hit us up with questions or suggestions for the show podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you liked it, leave us a rating and a review because it really helps. Thanks very much for inviting me on the show. My name is Tom Tungus, general partner and founder at Theory Ventures. You can find me at tomtungus.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon.